In the case of the federal changes to eligibility for certain people that are seeking asylum here, the changes are buried in an omnibus budget bill. What, what? Uh, They've never done that before. Welcome to The Docket, episode 93. My name is Michael Spratt. Hi, I'm Emily Tammon. How are you, Emily Tammon? I'm good. How are you, Michael Spratt? I'm tired. <laughs> auto, re- auto repeat. But not for the same reason as normal. We're not recording this episode late at night like we normally do. That usually makes me tired. We're recording this introduction early in the morning, so I'm tired <laughs> at the other end of the day. You're tired at all the times. Yeah, all the times. <laughs> What's your latest? Scoop. It's not too much. Um, things have been going pretty fun at home. Still reading The Wheel of Time with the boy and finally convinced the girl to do a Star Wars rewatch with me. And meanwhile, I am reading The Bridge to Terabithia with Henry, who's 10, and he is absolutely loving it. And he has no idea that there is like major tragedy around the corner. And we just read it and he giggles and he loves the characters. And I just don't have the heart in a way. I've just kind of put it on pause for a little bit because I don't want to do it. Break his little Henry heart. He doesn't know. Just do one of those endings where everyone loves happily ever after. And then when he's, you know, a young adult and talking to his friends about it, he can find out that you lied to him. (laughs) I can't do it. But probably the most um, fun, uh, exciting thing that happened this week uh, on a family level, but also kind of on a policy level was... Um, the Environment Committee of the um, City of Ottawa voted to declare a climate emergency in Ottawa and there was a rally before the committee meeting and we took our kids and a bunch of their friends. This was on a weekday morning at 8.30 so they got to show up a bit late to school and I think they were just really inspired by the activism, um, by people that are really wanting to convey the sense of urgency and it was just a really good and important day I think. Yeah, it was great because the kids not only got to go participate in that, but you gave a speech. They got to see you do, you know, some of the advocacy that you're doing. Have a bullhorn. Give me a bullhorn. You're going to hear me. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And like on balance, the good stuff from that day outnumbered the bad for a change. I mean, we only had two city councillors who had crazy pants views on uh, climate change. Um, They were just bananas. But other than that, I think what the motion passed six to two or something like that at committee. So, you know, that's that's not a bad uptake, right? No, that was great. And that was the you know, the motion was brought by our city councillor, Sean Menard. Shout out to Sean because I know he's a podcast listener. Um, And he just showed enormous leadership by engaging in advance with allies, advocates, opponents, which is always important, right? Like people that maybe would be less sure among his colleagues civil society organizations like Ecology Ottawa. And so next week on Wednesday, uh, April 24th, uh, there's going to be another rally at City Hall at 8.30 in the morning. So people that are in Ottawa who want to come and convey to their councillors 
uh, at the rally that they would like to see this motion adopted should definitely come by uh, City Hall on Wednesday the 24th. You know, not necessarily a, a legal issue, but one that's super important. And I think that we all need to talk about more in all places. I mean, just over the last little while, we've learned that, you know, despite you know everything that the federal government has said that they were going to do about climate change, we actually saw admissions go up over their tenure. And just here in Ottawa, we're getting like 80 millimeters of rain uh, today. And we're going to have one of those, you know, one in a hundred year floods, the last one that we had two years ago. So one in a hundred year floods are coming, you know, fast and furious. So it's definitely something that we need to do. It was a great rally. Kids make great signs. They had a really good time. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, talking about climate change in some ways has a nexus to the topic that we tackle this week on the docket. Yeah, immigration is a huge topic and it's connected to climate change and it's going to be more collected, connected to climate change as areas that experience drought become droughtier and, you know, beautiful island paradises become submerged scuba diving paradises. Um, you know, I think that except not paradises because there'll be no coral reefs or <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I think it's sort of easy to focus on you know what's happening in the short term and ignore long term trends. And geez, when you look at the long term trends, it's pretty dire, and that's going to have a huge effect on the movement of people. That's right. I mean, I would say climate change and human migration are the two greatest global challenges that we are not really appropriately. Um, acknowledging or addressing right now. And the situation for vulnerable uh, migrants uh, became even more tenuous this week, uh, the past couple of weeks, with major, major announcements from both the federal government and the provincial government that seek to really undermine uh, the rights protection framework uh, that um, that is engaged whenever you have, um, in particular, individuals seeking asylum in Canada. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a big issue in the coming federal election. I mean, we've seen divisive rhetoric from, you know, both the Liberals and the Conservatives on it. I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying, you know, this election is going to be important because, you know, if Andrew Scheer comes in, the situation for immigration is going to be terrible. And I sort of took a step back and I said, well, with a bunch of the changes that the liberals have imposed, I don't know if that's any worse than we would have got under a conservative government. So I think there's a lot of room to sort of strip back happy tweets and rhetoric, get rid of some of the fear-mongering that comes from the right and actually examine sort of the legal implications of some very major federal policy changes and some very cold-hearted and unfair provincial cuts that I think interact to create a real emergency for how immigration is dealt with in Canada and Ontario specifically. And so with so many changes coming at once and changes that um, really were came as an enormous shock to legal practitioners in the field uh, who it would seem were not consulted uh, really on either of these changes, who see very, very significant problems with both. In the case of the federal changes to um, eligibility for certain people that are seeking asylum here, uh, the changes are buried in an omnibus budget bill. What? what? Uh, They've never again. done that before. 
And so we thought it would be appropriate, um, given how substantive all these changes are and how uh, wide ranging their potential implications are, to reach out to someone with some expertise in the field to help us distill this for our listeners. Yeah, so we went over to the University of Ottawa and chatted with the very, very awesome Jamie Liu. Yes, so Jamie Liu is a professor at the University of Ottawa. Uh, in the law faculty, and her expertise is in immigration, refugee and citizenship law, uh, as well as administrative law and public law, which of course has a, a nexus to um, the area, other areas of her expertise. Uh, Jamie's current research examines the meaning of citizenship, legal barriers for stateless persons to obtain citizenship and nationality, gendered implications of Canadian law and migrants, and how Canada's immigration and refugee system marginalizes those navigating the process. She's written a book on immigration law. She has a bazillion degrees. She's an incredibly um, accomplished academic. And uh, what I think um, brought particular value to her um, uh, to her expertise is that Jamie is also a practitioner. So she has considerable experience representing people in the system, uh, some of whom, many of whom are legal aid clients. And so she really brings a richness because she has both a very high level um, scholarly uh, approach as well as a very practical hands-on approach um, dealing with these people as part of uh, her day-to-day practice. She's like the Swiss army knife of immigration expertise. <laughs> so we were thrilled that she was able to give us some of her time. Uh, she's someone that we've both interacted with a lot on Twitter over the years but um, I hadn't had a chance previously to really get to know and she's just really impressive and I hope everyone will find her insights valuable as this debate continues to rages on over both uh, both in Ontario and federally. Let's do it. Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for both defense and crown counsel anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. Jamie, welcome to the docket. Thank you. I'm so honored to be with you and on your podcast. We're so excited. I mean, I think it's funny because Jamie and I have interacted on Twitter a lot over the years. We've even sent private messages saying we should get together because we were both teaching at the University of Ottawa. And then we finally ran into each other for the first time a couple weeks ago. At École Louise Arbour. <laughs> the École Publique Louise Arbour uh, for the inauguration of the new name of the school. And we were both so excited. Yay, we're finally meeting in person. I actually told your mother that I had to go to my children's school to finally meet her. <laughs> I've been trying to get her to come to our law school, hint, hint. <laughs> if you're listening, she's not. Um, and so then it was just kind of a weird, fortuitous, unfortunate um, sort of timing thing where now there's a big issue in the media that we would benefit um, and our listeners would benefit from your expertise on. And so I thought, finally, we get to um, chat in person. I'm honored to be here. It's the one good thing that massive omnibus budget bills um, that bury immigration change and Doug Ford slashing legal aid, there's one bit of good. Who knew that two budget bills in one week could cause so much chaos? It's unbelievable, really. It when did, I mean, at least we can say, and I guess we should give a bit of context here, but at least we can say that um, Doug Ford's measures were budgetary. 
Um, but um, the federal government's um, pretty significant substantive changes to um, the refugee law framework uh, were a surprise to see those in a budget bill, to say the least. Oh, extremely. I, it's a 392-page docu- document, so an extensive document, and these were not light changes. These were substantive and significant changes that affect the rights of refugee claimants. Um, it is it fundamentally changes the way in which the determination process works and really forecloses the opportunity for people to even make a claim. So these are not, as you said, dealing with money per se. It's dealing more with access to particular procedures and the ability for someone to exercise their right to be heard, which is, I think, a very significant change that should have been placed in uh, a different kind of mechanism so that Parliament could have scrutinized it better, right? Exactly. Well, I guess we know that there can be problems when you introduce complicated legislation in giant omnibus bills. Um, I mean, that's sort of how the whole SNC uh, scandal started with the last budget implementation bill. But criminal lawyers are notoriously bad for not knowing enough about immigration laws. So can you tell us exactly what the changes are in this omnibus bill and why they might be a bit of a cause for concern? Yeah, there's actually quite a number of changes and some that even immigration lawyers are still trying to figure out. But the most, I think, significant change is that um, there is a new ineligibility requirement now so that people who have made a refugee claim in another country are now um, prohibited from making a refugee claim in Canada. Whether they find themselves within Canada, whether they come to our land port of entries, whether they arrive at the airport. So it doesn't matter anymore how you arrive or when you arrive or how you find yourself within Canada. If you have made a claim elsewhere, then you are foreclosed from making a claim in Canada. Um, And it also means that uh, for some people, um, it means that they won't be able to um, have their claim heard at all. Because what does it mean to have submitted a claim in another country? Uh, For some people, it could have been, you know, filling out an application in a country And that's it. They wouldn't have had their claim heard or had it scrutinized through um, an immigration office, a board or decision maker. So it means that there are some people who have never had their claim heard at all, will never have the opportunity also in Canada. So it's that is the biggest, I think, and the most disturbing change that is happening in the omnibus bill, aside from other more nuanced changes about eligibility for humanitarian compassionate grounds applications, pre-removal risk assessments. You know, but, you know, all this to say, I think this is a very disturbing kind of development in in this bill. So with respect to the first change that you described, so the notion that a person who's made a claim in another designated state is no longer eligible to make a claim in Canada. um, And you noted that it it didn't matter how they came into Canada. Um, So what was the state of the law before this change? As I understand it, um, the legislation didn't say anything at all about whether you'd made a claim elsewhere. Um, and if you came in at a regular port of entry, was there any consequence to an asylum seeker arriving at a regular port of entry who had made a claim in another jurisdiction? So because of the Safe Third Country Agreement, those persons who entered or attempted to enter through an official port of entry by land, and they were coming through, for example, through the United States, they would not be eligible to make a claim unless you fell into one of the exceptions. And those exceptions include you have a family member in Canada or for health reasons, or you are an unaccompanied minor. And sorry, not to cut you off, but so if you are a person 
who was in the U.S. but had not made an asylum claim in the U.S. and you came to a regular port of entry in Canada, you were ineligible to apply because the Safe Third Country Agreement said you had to make your claim in the U.S., whether you had done so or not. That's right. right? So now it's that still applies. The Safe Third Country Agreement still applies to people who are arriving from the United States. Um, But now if you uh, arrive at a land port of entry, an airport, happen to get yourself into Canada for whatever reason and want to make a refugee claim and you have, you know, one of the five countries identified as, you know, following um, under the budget bill, uh, um, whether you've made a claim or made an application, uh, you could be subject to these new rules where you wouldn't be able to make a refugee claim. And so when the government, because there was a problem or a perceived problem about the number of people irregularly entering Canada at unofficial border crossings. Um, it seemed like that number for a while was going up. It seems that maybe it had been normalizing a little bit. And there was talk about, you know, closing the loophole in the third in the safe third country agreement, because if you crossed irregularly, the same rules didn't necessarily apply as if you crossed at a fixed border point. Um, the government says that this is closing the loophole, but it seems to maybe not be closing the loophole in the way that's the fairest and most compassionate for people who might be in desperate situations. Yeah, in fact, um, a lot of us were surprised um, that this was the measure that was brought. Um, We had envisioned some other measure that would take place with regards to if it was discovered that you had come into Canada from the United States or you had spent time in the United States prior to that, that would um, disqualify you from being eligible for refugee protection. But now they've expanded that in a way where it applies beyond the land you know, border and beyond the United States. Um, it is really concerning in the sense that um, it doesn't matter anymore the mode of travel. And I think that is what is concerning is that it, it, it and the bill is retroactive. So once the bill is passed, you know, people who are here now could be found automatically ineligible despite the fact that they might have and so people are asking you know if does it matter whether you put in a claim before the certain date or or whatnot so we have clients now who are a bit of a limbo until this bill passes to find out whether or not they actually can have their claim heard Um, and it's quite an expansion to uh, foreclosing the opportunity what do we know, and I assume it must be a high number, about the number of people who were entering Canada irregularly from the United States making asylum claims here who had already made claims in the U.S.? Is it most, or do we know? We don't know. Um, I think it's hard to say, um, but I think there is a good proportion of those people who have crossed the border, perhaps not at a bo- official port of entry, um, that have made a claim previously in the United States, or it might be that they uh, missed their, their time. There is, in the United States, a one-year statutory bar sort of uh, time limitation for making a claim. So if you miss that window, you are f- in the United States forever uh, foreclosed from ever making a claim. And so some of these people either made their claim, decided to come to Canada, made their claim, had their claim rejected, came to Canada, or failed to make their claim within the one-year window, or some didn't make their claim at all. So there's a you know a variety of uh, situations amongst the people that are coming to Canada. And those latter two categories of people, though, would still be eligible to make a claim in Canada. So people who came across not at an official port of entry and had not previously made a claim in the U.S. or any of the Five Eyes countries 
are still eligible. Well, but not if they come in. They still have to come in irregularly in order to be eligible. Because if they if they come from the U.S. to a border crossing, they're ineligible as a result of the safe third country agreement. But if they come in surreptitiously or uh, you know irregularly, then if I'm understanding you right, then they are still eligible. As far as I understand the yeah. legislation, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think this kind of begs the question of: Is this really a good way to manage our border? Right. I think what it comes down to for me is. You know, I understand the need to manage the border, to manage migration, uh, to process people, to ensure that people have legitimate refugee claims, to ensure they're not a security risk to Canada. But I think completely denying people from making a claim is not the way to do it. And so what happens, I mean, if this bill passes as is, so say you come at, you know, not the U.S. border, but you fly in from another country or you arrive on a boat for another country or maybe even arrive at the U.S. border, do you get deported or sent back to the U.S. or to your initial country that you came from? How does that work? So I think there are a number of countries where this applies. It would apply to Australia, New Zealand, the U.S. Um, It's the five eyes. The U.K. The U.K., that's right. Um, So if it is discovered that you had spent time in either of these countries um, and that possibly you have made a claim at these any one of these countries it doesn't matter where you came from Um, and then at the border you will be you know asked some questions about it and um, it will be you will be turned away basically and you could be returned you know the legislation the regulations lists you know a, a number of different options on which countries you could be returned to it could be your country of nationality it could be a country you have permanent residence at country of your birth you know there's different ways in which Canada Border Services Agency would evaluate the choices but you know and the other option is that if people are aware they can ask for a pre-removal risk assessment so this is an assessment done to determine if you were to be returned whether you'd be returning to risk or a risk of torture, risk of persecution. Um, But my experience is, you know, with some of my clients that unless you ask for this, you're not going to get it. It's really unclear whether, you know, the government's going to be mandating its border officials to say, hey, you're ineligible for a refugee claim, but guess what? We'll give you this pre-removal risk assessment to, you know, fill out. And, you know, as you know, uh, these are not easy applications, and you know people will be forced to do it at the border, at the t- you know right at that instance, and whether or not it will be done in a you know a way that is fair to the um, person that is applying to ask for protection at the border is another question. So you know a couple of issues: whether or not people are actually going to be told that they have this opportunity to have their risk assessed, and secondly, whether it's going to be dealt with in a you know in a fair and nuanced way in which we hope. That People would people's risk would be evaluated. So could someone who comes in and is subject to this new law, is it possible that they could be returned, say they're coming from Australia, to Australia's, you know, immigration island prison, or to a country that they're fleeing a desperate situation from? Like, is it possible that because of this law that these vulnerable people could be sent back to places like those? It's very likely that they could be sent back to the place that they're claiming persecution, you know, risk of persecution or torture, where their lives are at risk, where they could be harmed. Um, In terms of the five eyes, whether they'd be returned to those countries, I'm guessing that those countries will not welcome them with open arms if, you know, 
they have either rejected them as a refugee You're or... You're saying the states, Donald Trump wouldn't <laughs> welcome these people with open arms? Yeah, you know, or they might re be returned, as you said, to be detained, right? Um, it's unclear what kind of agreements uh, the Canada has made with, with their partners on this. Um, you know, we know that there there is evidence out there showing that people who are making their way to the Canadian border, that the United States... Um, you know, officials are, you know, apprehending, detaining and prosecuting people for, you know, um, various offenses related to their immigration laws. So it's not hard to see that people who might be returning back to their country of transit or country of last residence might be subject to immigration detention or other kinds of processes. And um, I just want to understand. So first of all, the, the Five Eyes countries are they also part of the safe third country agreement? Not currently, just the United States. But there is, you know, room in the legislation to, you know, um, in, enter into another safe third country agreement with another country, and that's very yeah <laughs> concerning. And the pre-removal uh, risk assessment: if you're someone who essentially has been found ineligible pretty much now under the new law on an administrative for an administrative reason, right? You've applied mm -hmm. elsewhere. Uh, and let's look at this from the perspective of a bona fide refugee. So someone who is um, is sincere in their claim and in law is correct that they that they ought to be granted asylum. How does the and, and you made the point about they may not be aware that they can pursue a pre-removal risk assessment, but assuming that they do and they go down that road and assuming without preempting our next conversation that they have the assistance of counsel, for example, what can you tell us about how the different procedures vary? So if this person wasn't, you know, administratively barred by virtue of having made a previous claim, they would make an asylum claim in Canada and have certain procedural um mechanisms in place and available to them. So how, how does that process that they're now debarred from compare with um, assuming that they actually can invoke it, a, a pre-removal risk assessment? So they're very different. The, you know, the refugee determination system is housed administratively in the Immigration and Refugee Board, which is, you know, the gold standard in the world with regards to refugee determinations. It means that you are in a hearing room, a quasi- you know, um, judicial setting with a board member. Um, you have the opportunity to orally give your story, answer questions on the part of the board member and perhaps representatives from the government. Um, you can have a representative, a legal counsel or whatnot to help you provide legal submissions um, and the board member then makes a decision either orally or in writing. Um, this is fundamentally different than the pre-removal risk assessment where you are not guaranteed to tell your story orally. So if the officer, you know, um, looks at your paper application and decides on that basis that they will deny your pre-removal risk assessment, they can. Um, there is, you know, discretion on the part of the officer to interview a person, but an interview is very different, right? An interview is one-on-one -on -one with a person who might not be um, as, you know, nuanced in their interaction with them as it would be in a judicial setting or quasi-judicial setting. Um, you wouldn't have the same kinds of opportunities to present submissions or have the same kinds of procedural fairness mechanisms in place in, in that sense. 
Um, so A, there's no guarantee that you will be given an opportunity to be heard or to respond to any concerns necessarily orally. Um, and secondly, um, you're dealing with a decision maker that is fundamentally different in a setting that's fundamentally different. You're doing it at the border as opposed to a, a hearing and having some time to prepare for your, um, you know, uh, your oral testimony, so to speak. So does this get to the crux of what, um, you know, immigration and refugee practitioners, for example, are raising as the real concern is that as a result of this, if your only mechanism is to go the pre-removal risk assessment, it would seem from what you're saying that there's a, a very real concern that people who are genuinely in need of protection um, might not get that protection as a result of, you know, this different procedure that they have to now yeah, I would say there's two things about that. The first is that, you know, for example, in 2018, only 97% or only 3% of uh, pre-removal risk assessments were granted. So it is a mechanism that has traditionally traditionally not been very good at, um, you know, uh, recognizing risk. But would those, sorry, but would, would in, in the previous regime, would people who are having those pre-removal risk assessments already have had a, an asylum claim adjudicated through the regular process? Not necessarily. Okay. So it's not always the case that you have a refugee claim determined and then do a pre-removal risk assessment. There, and for various reasons, it might be that your pre-removal risk assessment is different from your refugee claim because of the passage of time, because of certain circumstances have changed, or because of various reasons um, things did not go well you know, or you didn't have the opportunity to present your claim for whatever reason. There's a multitude of reasons why different procedures may not have happened. And the second thing I think I want to highlight is that, you know, Canada has all recognized since 1985 in the Supreme Court of Canada decision of Singh that refugee claimants have a right to be heard orally um, and in a setting of an administrative tribunal or hearing. And to have legislation buried in an omnibus bill that thumbs its nose at this right that has been celebrated very recently. It had its anniversary in April and the government was celebrating a Refugee Rights Day. You know, to, to then turn around a couple weeks later to, to take this right away from large swaths of people is very concerning. So I think, you know, beyond the differences in the procedure, it is really um, a denial of a right. A procedural fairness right that has long-standing um, recognition in our legal, you know, uh, jurisprudence, but also, you know, that we've taken for granted. I would say, in some respects. So it seems to be some pretty major changes and a reversal in some of the discussions coming from the federal government. I mean, we have Bill Blair talking about, you know, asylum shopping and things like that that seem to minimize and trivialize what these applicants might be going through. Um, but this is also a change that's going to be studied at the Finance Committee for a couple hours in an expedited process because this budget implementation bill needs to go through before, uh, before the election, before things pass. And so I imagine that there might not be the robust study that is required. Is that enough? Like, would you like to see more? Are there, do you have concerns? I mean, definitely. I think so, but. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, even beyond just this, you know, legal reasoning on why we want to have oral hearings and why we want to hear refugee claims, um, there's the other reason of, you know, why, do we, why is it that we want to delegate these kinds of decisions to 
other countries? Why is it that we trust them to do the right thing when it comes to refugee claims? And I mean, the United States is a very good example. It does not recognize refugee claims based on domestic violence or gender-related claims right now. You know, the previous Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued a decision that practically foreclosed any opportunity for anybody to make a claim on those grounds. Uh, and Canada has a long-standing practice of recognizing these kinds of claims and to rely on the fact that the United States may have, you know, had someone submit a claim um, is not enough. You know, we really need to have better assurances that, um, and I, I mean, if you want to go down that road, we better insurance, assurances that these countries are doing things the way that we expect them to be, uh, you know, adhering to the human rights of those people. Um, but secondly, I, I just simply don't think we should be delegating these decisions. We have a system in place. We should trust it. Why are we turning our backs on it? We already have mechanisms in place. Um, we should be using them. We should be turning our resources to refining them, to making sure that they have the resources to meet um, the number of claims that are coming through. It almost makes me think of, um, I don't know why for some reason, but the Azkov case back in the day that just punted a whole bunch of cases out of the system on constitutional grounds, but also, you know, just freed up the court's docket. <laughs> and it almost kind of feels like they're just trying to purge a burden on the system rather than finding ways for the system to handle the burden that's been placed on it. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you sort of related to that is, what is your assessment of the scale of the, quote, problem with the Safe Third Country Agreement? So in terms of this seems to be an kind of almost backdoor way of trying to address a loophole, as it's often described in the Safe Third Country Agreement, um, did you feel that there was actually a need for a policy change to address that? Or what's your assessment of how significant the problem was? And do you have any thoughts about how it could have been dealt with um, if it was a problem um, otherwise? So I think that people always forget that people have always been coming to our borders. We have a system in place to assess people, to greet people at the border, to determine what processes they need to go through. Um, and in 2002, when the Safe Third Country Agreement came into place, it was very clear from, you know, the, the debates, the, you know, uh, discussion from Parliament that this agreement came into place basically to um, decrease the number of claims coming to the IRB, the Immigration Refugee Board. This has not been the case. I mean, people have found a way to work around it. And so there are still numbers of people coming to the Immigration Refugee Board. It has not um, dealt with the issue of decreasing the numbers. I get that there is, you know, issues with trying to create an efficient system for the IRB to um, determine cases in a very efficient and timely manner. Um, but I don't think that should be, you know, measures to help the IRB should not be ones that thwart the rights of refugee claimants. There are better ways to deal with this. It is a resource problem. You know, at, at, at issue, this budget bill should have dealt with it in a budgetary way by putting more <laughs> resources towards the IRB. And the government has done that in the, the last couple of years. So it's kind of shocking that it recognizes the need for the IRB to be um, resourced enough to deal with this issue, but at the same time thinking that it's okay to kind of put, you know, a barrier in place to prevent people from making claims. This, to me, is not... It may be an efficient way to deal with the demand problem, but it is one that basically violates the rights of, of persons and it will be challenged in 
in court. It's almost like there's an election coming up or something <laughs> like that. You I don't think? know. Um, so these cases do make it to court, and there's lawyers that you know assist people who are unfamiliar with our legal system, and you know have um, backgrounds that may lead them. To, to be marginalized or to, you know, not fill out paperwork and, and not be able to, to appropriately express, you know, the magnitude of what they're facing back home. Um, and traditionally, we've had lawyers to do that. And it might be a good idea now to move on to the, the second topic. Um, Doug Ford in Ontario's budget, which came after, uh, after the federal budget, um, announced that there are huge and massive cuts to legal aid. Um, slashing $133 million this year, the year that's already started and been budgeted for, uh, in the middle of the year, um, sort of pulling the, the rug out and changing the landscape. And that's a 30% cut, and it appears that about $45 million of that, all of the money that the province gives to, uh, to fund legal services for immigration and refugee uh, claimants, um, all of that is gone going forward. Yeah, it started on Tuesday. We had zero notice, basically. Um, so it means that there is no longer any ability for anyone to get a legal aid certificate related to immigration or refugee matters as of Tuesday. <laughs> so it's been, you know, it, the budget was announced and then days later this was, you know, you know, we all received emails saying you're no longer going to be able to get certificates. This is, uh, you know, it, it's shocking. Um, there's lack of regard and, and uh, compassion for the people it affects. There's no transition period, no um, period of, you know, figuring out what to do. And, and basically lawyers are now trying to figure out, you know, minute by minute, how do I respond to calls that are coming to my office? Um, it is true that existing legal aid certificates will still be ongoing, and I understand that there will be certificates given to help people fill out their basis of claim form, meaning the actual application form. But it means that people who are going to a hearing, and it's not just refugee hearings, we're talking about detention reviews, we're talking about appeals for inadmissibility at the Immigration Appeal Division, all kinds of immigration matters are affected. And I, I get. I, I want to point out the immigration detention reviews. I mean, that is significant. There is a, a lot of people in immigration detention who have never been charged with a criminal offense, never been convicted, um, having their detention reviewed as to whether or not they should continue to be in detention every, say, 30 days. Last summer, there was a report, an external audit done on the detention review process. So the actual, you know, quasi-judicial process in which an immigration board member would you know, sit and decide with a detainee whether or not they should be released or not. And the report was scathing, you know, gross violations of procedural fairness, lack of consideration with regards to the context in which the person is in, including those with mental health issues, addictions. Um, you know, and when I talk about gross violations of procedural fairness, you know, preventing detainees from orally being heard, from having their witnesses testify, um, from considering, you know, detention plans that have been, you know, uh, crafted together with government lawyers. So um, I could go on about this, but to say that there were already problems when lawyers were in the room, I have very, you know, there it's is... It's not going to get better. It's not going to get better, even though the IRB recognizes and is making steps to make it better. 
we, they, detainees and the IRB alone can't do it. You need a lawyer to be in the room to identify a procedural fairness issue and to advocate for that detainee. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of people in indefinite detention. That is what we're facing. That is terrifying. I mean, it is so terrifying. Because these are people that are having their liberty removed by the state. And the state is now orchestrating things so that they don't have access to counsel. So, I mean, what's going to happen? Like, is it habeas corpus applications? Like, what is... But who is going to do the habeas corpus (laughs) applications? The lawyers are not being funded, right? Um, it It means there's going to be a lot of pro bono cases for sure. It means there's going to be some challenges to this as well, I think. Um, But I also think that it is ironic that this is being brought down in a budget bill when you're creating situations where this is going to increase the cost for, you know, whatever government is taking care of these, uh, the detention of... um, of immigration detainees. And that's just, you know, one slice of, you know, the services that lawyers provide, you know. That context seems comparable probably to the criminal context where because liberty is at stake, people will have a constitutional claim to make before a court, assuming they can find someone to advance it for them, but where they'll bring a Robotham application, which is an application to a court where you basically say, through the normal channels, the state has denied me access to funding for my case, either because I make too much money or now in this case because the state just doesn't fund these kinds of cases. But my constitutional rights are in jeopardy. So you have to have a whole proceed- proceeding before a court. Mm-hmm. And presumably, in most cases, these applications will be granted by the court. And so the government is still going to end up funding these cases, but through a different envelope. And at the end of the day, it will have cost way more money because the justice system will have had to adjudicate the constitutional claim, not to mention that these people will be sitting in detention for more prolonged periods of time, just awaiting a determination of whether they can have counsel. That's well, exactly right. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, and on the criminal side, we're seeing, again, because of some changes, and especially if some proposed changes in Bill C-75, for example, goes through at the federal level, we're seeing a lot of the criminal offenses have their maximum punishment be raised to 10 years or more, which has immigration consequences That's as right. well. So, I mean, at the same time that we're seeing everything that we talked about, about you know, the changes at the federal level in the omnibus bill and the safe third country agreement, and we're seeing these new laws that are going to expose more people to automatic removal orders that can maybe be appealed in some cases. Um, we're seeing a massive cut in funding. On the criminal side of things, we're still waiting for the other shoe to drop because there's still $90 million that are going to be cut from other services. And I mean, legal aid's a pretty lean and efficient operation. I don't think you're going to find that by shaking out the couch cushions or anything like that. So there's going to be cuts on the criminal side as well. We just don't know what they are yet. Um, Let me play devil's advocate for just a second. And you can tell me if this is totally crazy. So when we're looking at division of powers, the federal government um, is responsible for criminal and immigration matters, and the provincial government is responsible for the administration of criminal law and and, and the court system. Um, so if I'm a, let's call me Doug Ford, and I'm sitting at <laughs> Queen's Park, yeah. and I say, I don't want to pay for criminal courts in the administration of law, but I have to. Um, it's part of my constitutional responsibility, and I really care about division of powers. Even, even though the federal government has been downloading costs on me, I still constitutionally have to do it. Is it a different situation for immigration and refugee where it, it may be solely in the federal power? Um, 
shouldn't the federal government be paying for that under division of powers? Is that argument, not that it has been advanced by the province, but perhaps it would be. Um, I think it ha- I mean, I think basically they're that, saying it's a federal responsibility. Immigration's your problem. Is now, that, I mean, yeah. there's the whole, there's the whole ethics of yanking the rug out of people midway and not engaging with the federal government before they set their budget to try to make sure that people don't fall through and just the normal moral and ethical obligations that we might have to look out for one another. But does the province have a point that the federal government maybe should be paying for all of this? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Good. Tell um, me why. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, fundamentally, yes, you know, immigration falls under the federal jurisdiction. But, you know, and I do honestly think that this is a ploy by the Ontario government to try to get the federal government to throw some money at this problem. Um, they, you know, alluded to this kind of thing earlier in the year when they talked about housing issues with immigrants and refugees um, and said that this was a problem that the federal government should address through funding. Um, And now they're doing it through the legal aid program. To be frank, this is within Ontario's wheelhouse. I'm sorry, it's a provincial jurisdiction. It is clear in the Constitution that, you know, the provincial jurisdiction is to deal with, you know, housing, social services, and and legal aid falls into that umbrella. And to point at the federal government is wholly irresponsible and ignores their own responsibility, you know, and deflects attention from their own uh, responsibility under the Constitution. This is not just a, you know, a responsibility that has just happened to have been created through years of, um, you know, creation of these programs. This is under the Constitution, you know, and it has been delegated accordingly and for the government of Ontario to ignore that and to point the finger at the federal government or to goad them into funding these programs by slashing it in this manner is not only irresponsible but is is shocking and um, and I think very uh, you know uh, discompassionate when it comes to to the plight of immigrants immigrants and refugees and, and it really speaks to what this government thinks of migrants, immigrants, refugees, right? Oh, yes, they've made that quite clear in other (laughs) ways, but now, but um, didn't it kind of work for them with the cuts to Pro Bono Ontario? Because they slashed that program and the feds came in and dumped some money into it, didn't they? Yeah. That was one of Jody Wilson-Raybould's last big moments of um, praise was when, you know, the the civil bar in particular um, really rallied against the cuts to Pro Bono Ontario. And from what I recall, um, and, you know, Aaron Durant and others can correct me if I'm wrong, but that essentially the province said, too bad, so sad. And the feds came in and kicked, I don't know, 10, 13, $20 million or something into it. Um, so, you know, maybe that was kind of kicking the tires and it sort of worked. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, a bit it's all di- politics. Is it, it's, I mean, it so doesn't sit well for me because, I mean, I've had opinions on the whole pro bono thing. But, I mean, in that case, civil lawyers, you know, stepped up and chipped in money and fundraised and they were giving their time pro bono and they're going to give more time pro bono. And that's great. They make a lot of money otherwise. Um, I know. It, immigration and criminal lawyers who do these legal aid cases um, don't do it for the money. And we don't do it for the money because there's not much money there. I mean, especially looking at, you know, people newly arriving to Canada. These aren't people of means generally, as are most people who are charged with criminal offenses. And so when we're asking those types of lawyers to do pro bono work, 
I think really what we're going to see is a whole generation of lawyers face financial barriers that make it impossible for them to provide that service at all if they wanted to. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, to speak to Emily's point with regards to it worked before, you know, obviously they're hoping the same thing will happen here. And, you know, in truth, I think a lot of people in the bar hope that that will happen. But I don't think that's the answer. We can't rely on a Hail Mary from the federal government to come in and and just dump some money to the problem because what if they decide to take that funding away again next year? You know, this is not a sustainable ish, you know, way to deal with this issue. What really needs to happen is, you know, the Ontario government should be held accountable for um, recognizing what is in their wheelhouse, what is under their umbrella, and what is their responsibility under the Constitution. Really, you know, providing a means for people to access lawyers uh, in a way to by viewing it as a way to create efficiency in the system. As you said earlier, this is only going to increase costs in other areas. It's kind of diverting costs to the province in different ways and creating havoc and chaos um, and and maybe sending a political message about what they think about immigrants and, and refugees and migrants and in some ways is very racist, I would say, right? They're Absolutely, especially because if, if they genuinely felt that they're was a resource shortfall that was making it challenging for them to essentially respect the human rights of, you know, newly arrived people that were in the immigration system. So for example, on the housing file, like there is a case to be made that there there has been a significant burden in particular on municipalities, forget about the province. And, you know, maybe they would have a case to go to the federal government and ask for some support, right? Like that's not an unreasonable ask, I wouldn't think. But to use these people as pawns and to be so dismissive of the consequences of an act like this without having anything else in place, right? So um, is a totally different thing. And to me, it does signal that kind of contemptuous disregard that the provincial government has. And it's, it's hard to see it as anything other than racist. I mean, it, you know, is, is that basically, well, we don't even want these people here. So if you're going to make them come here, federal government, then it can be your problem financially. That That's kind of the tone as opposed to, we really want to house these people. We really want to support them in their transition, but we don't feel that we have enough money. Can you please help us? <laughs> exactly. Right? There is a, you know, and I think I've written elsewhere in, in public media where I've said, you know, there is a place for a conversation about, you know, what is the balance between federal and provincial responsibility? Certainly let's have that conversation. Yeah. Let's do so in a professional manner. Let's not, you know, dump a budget bill out there and then tell legal aid on Tuesday we're not issuing legal aid certificates anymore days after that budget bill has landed on people's desks it's really unre- you know irresponsible and cold-hearted I'd say and like 45 million dollars 133 million dollars it sounds like a lot of money it is a lot of money but not in the context of the Ontario budget of billions and billions and billions of dollars and a government that's for the people and for the orderly business transaction sort of environment, I mean, this is never a way that you would run a business. And this isn't a way that you would treat people if you're really for them. Yeah. And I would say, you know, a lot of people forget that even though these people are needing, you know, services and funding from the provincial government now, you know, there is a lot of research out there that shows that refugees, immigrants are contributing members to our society they will give back in their taxpaying dollars later on, you know, and to say that these people are just taking and we need to cut them off at this point is, I think, very, um, you know, mischaracterizes the reality out there. 
Yeah, it's a very populist kind of, it all feeds into a populist narrative that um, the provincial government isn't always super direct about, but that seems to be an undercurrent to a lot of things that they do. And essentially they're trying, it would seem, to pander to people that feel like refugees are taking resources from other priorities um, without understanding all of the things that you just said, that in fact, well, if you properly support people when they first come to Canada, you actually set them up in a way that, you know, empowers them to later and probably in a lot of cases not that far down the road um, start contributing to, you know, the the coffers of the province. Yeah, and I guess, you know, one of the things that, you know, uh, I've been thinking about with, you know, another scholar, Shauna Labman at the University of Manitoba, is the stark contrast with which there's the celebration of the refugee resettlement program, which should be lauded. This is something to be celebrated. And there are deserving refugees coming through that program. You know, on the one hand, you know, the federal government celebrating this and really saying we are, you know, humanitarian, pat ourselves on the back. But on the other hand, turning their backs against people who happen to find themselves within our borders or at our borders. Um, And I think this contrast really is um, a reflection of moral comfort in you know, acting a certain way with the refugee resettlement program, but then, you know, allowing that moral comfort to allow the government to act badly in other areas, right? To mm-hmm. maybe for political reasons, but also for reasons that may be for efficiency's sake or for financial reasons. But I think, you know, what we really need to have a conversation about is if the government is having this kind of dichotomous practice, we should be looking at the refugee issue and the immigration issue holistically. You can't have a program of resettlement and not recognize that there are violations of international human rights and also also rights recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada in our inland refugee program. Like there is, we need to look at this, zoom out a bit and say, hey, (laughs) you can't act one way and feel morally comforted by that in order for you to act badly here. And yet, you know, you're pointing out to the need, um, and I completely agree with you for a sort of a public debate, a political debate on these issues, and yet... Can you even conceive of an issue that is more difficult to have a reasoned debate about, especially, you know, outside of the ivory towers of policymakers and and Mm -hmm. academics and people like all of us um, to get the public on board is already so challenging. And then, you know, I think there's a case to be made that these recent measures are sort of pandering to people's worst instincts by or or at least that they think they can get away with it because there are enough people um, who at the end of the day just don't prioritize and that's a generous way of putting it for a lot of people they actively don't want it and I think I don't know I'm sure you saw recently this kind of problematically framed um, poll that basically asked Canadians do you think we have too much the right amount or not enough of um, non-white people immigrating to Canada as though as though there is an objective right number of you know white versus not white so I think this actually goes to the point that I maybe didn't articulate well enough earlier about what Shauna and I were working on is that, you know, there's this kind of, the government is kind of engaging in this kind of rhetorical uh, message that people are picking up, that there is a right way to be a refugee. You wait in line, we will select you, we will rescue you. Um, But if you are coming and knocking on our door and inviting yourselves over, then that is not the right way to do it. And, not very polite. Yeah, and also you're, you must not be deserving, you know? Right. And so to, to say that these people are, are illegal, 
and even I would say irregular. You know, the the issue is not whether how these people came to our attention or how they are asking us for protection. The mode by which they are asking for it or the mode by which they get to Canada is not important. What's important is that these people need to be assessed whether they really are a refugee or not. And you know, there are legitimate people coming through the refugee resettlement program, but there are also legitimate refugees coming this way. And to say that you know there are you know contrasting um, messages with regards to this really um, is not characterizing the law properly really we have a legal yeah. obligation and we need to we need the government to actually you know look at the refugee program holistically rather than pitting refugees against refugees a refugee is a refugee right right and I mean the lack of nuance uh, in the conversation I'm sure will only get better with the federal election coming up because that's a time <laughs> for nuanced conversations you're very positive yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> But I mean, what's so disappointing for me, besides everything else that we've talked about, (laughs) is that from an international standpoint, Canada's in a super privileged position to actually have a nuanced, intelligent conversation. We are a wealthy country. We are a country with good sort of legal and and, uh, procedural safeguards. Or we used to before this. (laughs) We have, you know... Um, codified and protected, you know, rights. And we're not a country that is in the same position as, you know, some European countries or African countries with respect to refugees. I yeah, mean, our geography, our geography makes, it, makes it that there's not a, a crisis at our border. We don't have a hundred thousand, you or know, millions or of millions refugees within our country. That's right. Showing up. And, and despite like that privilege and the wealth and the fact that we have that geographical sort of privilege as well that gives us sort of time to breathe and and not necessarily a crisis we still can't seem to get it right or have a conversation about it under those ideal circumstances that's right and i think there's a lot of fear right and i i understand why people have that fear but really people you know have this uncomfortable notion that you know they're willing to send aid to other countries or you know a, a good example is you know one woman talked about how um, they had to cancel the garlic festival in Cornwall because they were t- putting up tents for refugees crossing there, and people were upset about it. And she said, rightly, There's that... There's not much to do in Cornwall, to be fair. <laughs> but the garlic festival. <laughs> um, but she rightly said, you know, when it came down to, like, gathering toothpaste and sending things like that to Haiti, you know, people were okay with that. But then when you see the people right in front of you, that's where people start to have an issue. And I think people need to ask themselves why. You know, why does it bother you so much? Why can't we be humanitarian in all respects rather than just at a distance, right? That's right. And I think, you know, just before we wrap up, I would also put it out there that another debate that has to be had that isn't doesn't appear to be unfolding right now is also this is really a time that we need to be looking at opening up pathways to migration, that there are a lot of people who maybe don't qualify under international law as refugees, but who are coming from very vulnerable um, economically and with climate change, like there are going to be more and more drivers, you know, when, when, when people whose asylum claims are denied are characterized by, in particular, com- uh, conservatives as you know economic migrants, as though they're all brain surgeons that are looking to come and work at hospitals here, when in fact they are people who are in such desperate financial, um, or there's so little opportunity for them that although they don't meet the international legal definition of a refugee, they, they are nonetheless in a, a a state of humanitarian crisis that maybe we should be thinking more about whether we there's something that Canada can do also to to offer um, you know it's not protection from their state but um, 
opportunity to, to those people yeah, as well. One of my pet projects is stateless people. They do not fit under the Refugee Convention. My father was stateless before coming to Canada, and I think there are, you know, whole millions of stateless people in the world uh, left in legal limbo because there simply isn't a legal mechanism that they fit under. And this is a perfect example where we should be having more of these conversations, you're right, about, you know, how do we expand the rubric for protection? How do we provide a migration uh, program in Canada that is still the gold standard for the world, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's so much work to be done. I feel like we could talk to you for another three hours <clears throat> and maybe we, we should talk again uh, in the coming months too because, you know, there's still a lot to, there's still a lot of big question marks, right? Like we're still, and, and in particular experts like you are still trying to really assess the, the the true scale of these changes and what they might mean. Yeah, it's early days. I mean, I've been talking to people about what do we do now? How do we fill in the gap? Um, you know, I'm in a very privileged position to be at the university and thinking about how to engage students to do this. So we're still in early days and we're still figuring it out. So we'd be happy to continue the conversation. And if people want to find you or follow your work, dare you give our listeners your Twitter handle or a way to get in touch? <laughs> yes, my Twitter handle is at the Chaiyun. So it's at the and then C-H-A-I-Y-U-N. Yes, and you're active on Twitter, so I, I think, and you, you've been doing, you know, other real media, not not just podcasts. So, this is um, real. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I definitely encourage our listeners to follow your, you on Twitter, because that's how we came to know you, too. Thanks so much, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you for talking about this issue. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to the docket on itunes if you like it spread the word you can follow emily on twitter at emily tamman and you can follow me on twitter at m spratt thanks for listening Some heat.